and go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22. I want to begin reading with verse number 31. Notice the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen your brethren. He said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. He said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. So we want to briefly minister about Simon, Satan, and the sifting, the sifting that's mentioned here in the scripture. We, we know that Simon, being a disciple of the Lord, if we follow his steps through the scriptures, there are several things that we learn. Number one, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. That was his brother. When Peter came to Jesus, the Lord looked at him and said, that'll no longer be your name. We're going to call you the rock. You're going to be the stable one. You're going to be useful to me in the future. Jesus must have made some kind of an impact upon Simon because later on it says he was casting a net in the sea. And while doing that, the Lord walked past the Sea of Galilee and said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Simon also left his nets to follow Jesus, which is a good illustration of considering the things that we've left to follow him. What did you give up? What did you walk away from? What kind of a net did you once cast that brought about a lot of things into your life? Some were a blessing, some that were not a blessing. Think of the network of friends that you left, that you walked away from many things. This man, Peter, walked with the Lord long enough as a disciple that when Jesus began to hear the rumors, he said, who do everybody say that I am? And Peter spoke up quickly. He said, Lord, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. <clears throat> he had no problem acknowledging who Jesus was. Christ was happy that he had the revelation, but he said, my father in heaven gave this to you. No man, no human told you this. Peter's walk with the Lord caused him to be elevated to the point that he was in the inner circle of the Lord. Peter, James, and John. Jesus was on the mountain. He was up there talking to God. Suddenly he began to glow. He was being transfigured. A voice came from heaven, said, this is my son. Listen to him. Moses, Elijah, appeared to Jesus on that mountaintop, talking to him about the death that should be accomplished in Jerusalem. And oftentimes when I think about that, I ask myself, how did Andrew feel about this? Andrew brought <clears throat> his brother to the Lord. And Andrew watched as his brother was promoted, in some sense, above and beyond him. That Peter was permitted access that it doesn't seem like Andrew himself had as one of the inner circle. Later when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Again, he has Peter, James, and John with him, not Andrew. Have you ever thought about that? When you lead somebody to the Lord, it's a possibility that they might even excel you. 
and what they accomplished for God? Many parents say that they want their children to do better than they did, but there are a whole lot of parents that are competitive enough that they would never want that to happen. Andrew wasn't that way. He brought his brother to Jesus. He wanted Andrew and Peter's life to be transformed. It was so transformed that Peter was involved with miracles that would leave people astonished. They said to the disciples, they said, you folks are traveling and raising money and preaching, but do you pay taxes? And they were asking him. Peter wanted to know, Lord, do we pay taxes? The Lord said, take a coin out and look at it. Looking at the coin, said, whose image and inscription is on there? Well, it looks like it's Caesar to me. He said, then I'll tell you what you do. You go down to the lake, and I want you to cast a line into the lake, and the first fish that comes out of there, I want you to throw your, thrust your hands into its mouth, into its gills, and pull out a coin. That's exactly what happened. He said, you take that and you pay taxes. I'm telling Jesus was bad, wasn't he? Not too many people can tell folks how to do that. But Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus and he learned a lot of things. So imagine here when the Lord is a few hours away from his betrayal by Judas, the discussion begins and the Lord says, one of you is going to betray me. Who is it going to be? They're all asking the question, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Are you going to do it? Ask the Lord, who is it that's going to betray him? And they start arguing amongst themselves in verse 24. There was so much strife there because they wanted to know who's going to be the greatest. Matthew said, I'm greater than you. Thomas said, I'm greater than you. Jesus pointed out to them that the one that's going to be great is going to have to be a servant. He said, even though I'm greater than all of you, I'm seated among you as a servant. I just washed your feet. Service is how we receive greatness and authority and power and he said my father has appointed to me a kingdom verse 29 and he said one day i'm also going to appoint you a kingdom because you're going to be seated on 12 thrones judging the tribes of israel i'm sure they felt better after hearing that but then this is when the conversation changes the lord looks at simon and he says simon satan wants you think about that to be on the receiving end of that statement. Satan has a bullseye on your back. He's painted it on your chest. You become the object of his desires, and you have to know that he's not going to give up until he has you. Now, the scripture says the adversary goes about roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour, whom he may devour. So he's looking for people specifically he can overcome. Just like wolves that run a herd of animals, until they separate and isolate the one that's weak. The devil looks for the one that withdraws from fellowship, the one that's easily offended and is a grudge bearer. He looks for the one that cannot handle pains in their body or pains in their spiritual life, and then he just overtakes them and seeks to devour them. He plants thoughts in their minds so they become paranoid and they become angry towards other people. And pretty soon they stay in the house with the, with the blinds drawn and the curtains pulled. And they don't want to be around people. And they have no idea that they're under attack being devoured alive. Just like a gazelle that's been caught by some kind of a cheetah. Simon, the devil is after you. 
He doesn't need to fool with me. He understands even when he comes to me, that as the prince of this world, when he comes, he doesn't find anything at all in me. But he desires you. And he wants to sift you. You have to think of the devil in some regard as like a hunter. And you know, anybody who goes out and hunts, they understand that animals have certain instinctive protective mechanisms. What does a rabbit do when a prey predator is out there? The rabbit runs. What does a chameleon do in order to be able to protect itself? It's able to change colors. What does a frog do? It's able to exude some substance, some secrete, some kind of a substance out of its body that's not nice to the taste. What about the porcupine? It can cause those spines to stick out. The puffer fish, birds, all kinds of animals have some kind of mechanism for protection. What do believers have? Scripture says, whom resist steadfast in the faith. That's all you have. Now, you know, if uh, an animal bites a human, we're not like, uh, we're not like um, armadillo and giraffe that, that have the kind of skin that's tough or like elephant and water buffalo and they've got to fight to break through that. We've got that tender skin. So if they develop a taste for us, then they know that that human being is a soft target. The devil knows that most people serving God are not strong enough to resist him, and that's why he's constantly on the prowl. And the one mechanism we have, which is our faith, a shield of faith, that seems to be the one thing we very often leave at home. But you need weapons of warfare to fight the devil. The devil looks for people whose habits of life put them in such a state of of a rut that they do the same thing over and over again. How do hunters look for elk and bear? They go to a place and they set up a tree stand, but usually before they set the tree stand up, they look for a place where they can see there's a trail or a path where all the deer are passing by. Maybe there's a watering hole. And pretty soon, if they see anything from footprints, hoof prints, dung, Fur, broken branches, whatever it might be, they'll set up a stand and, and then they'll sit there in the early in the morning. They'll sit there and wait until that animal comes by. And that animal instinctively is listening for noises and trying to smell. But if he's unable to recognize that there's a predator out there, he'll follow his same routine every single day. Get up, eat a few berries, and then pretty soon sun himself a little bit and then head straight to the watering hole without any deviation. And that happens to Christians. You serve God long enough to where pretty soon going to church becomes a rote pattern. And Sometimes you get in such a rut that you can't pull yourself out of it. And the devil knows exactly where you're going to be in your attitude. He knows exactly what you're going to do when certain situations come. And then he begins to target you and he says, I'm going to get him this time. Yeah. If the devil wanted Simon... Think about the conversation when the devil wanted Job. Job had no idea God and the devil were even conversing about him. God said to the devil, where you been? He said, I've been looking for somebody to hurt. (laughs) You got to love this question. Have you considered my servant, John? 
Have you considered my servant Tina? Have you considered my servant Loretta that there's nobody like them in all of the earth? They turn from iniquity and they love me. And the devil said, yeah, I I thought about them. I considered them. However, this man Job has a hedge about him and I can't get to him quite like I want to. I can do a few things, but you got that hedge. That hedge is made of kryptonite, and it's kind of hard for this old super devil to get over it. But you take away that hedge, I give you my word, God, before their back hits the ground, when I start beating them, they'll be blaspheming your name. God said, you're a lie. You take your best shot. He attacked Job's kids. They died. Attacked the herd, they were confiscated, stolen. Attacked their homes, they just blew apart. The runner came back and gave one bad news, bad news story after another, and pretty soon Job just took his clothes off and he said, Oh my God, I need to worship you, Lord, with all of this loss. I still have gain because I still have you. The devil went back to the Lord. God had to let him know, I guess it didn't work out like he thought it was. He still loves me. Oh, that's that's just for now. You you let me touch his health, because if there's one thing I do know about human beings and one thing I do know about about Pastor Darrow is he doesn't like pain. You let me you let me give some pain and inflict some pain in people's life. And so the Lord said, give it your best shot. And the devil went after Job and smote him with boils. Can you imagine boils on your head all the way down the bottom of your feet? It's hard to stand. It's hard to sit. Let's say chicken pox times 10,000 with pus inside all of the little bumps and bruises. And this man has to take broken pieces of pottery to try to scratch himself because the boils are there and you're itching so bad. And as you're scratching yourself, the pus is flowing out of these little sores. Oh, my. But even then, that man never did curse God. Scripture says, in all of these things, he never sinned with his lips. He said, Lord, naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. I'm serving you, God. Well, you you think about it, and now Jesus is given a story somewhat similar, but not as drastic to Simon. He said, Simon, the same way Job was targeted by the adversary and the adversary wanted him, I'm telling you right now, Satan desires you and you need to know he's going to accomplish his objective in attacking you. But I pray for you. Wow. He's telling the man up front. You're targeted. He's coming for you. He's coming for you. So Satan becomes the great antagonist in this story. And he wants to sift him as if this man is wheat. Now think about that. Anybody that spends a little bit of time in the kitchen learning about the different tools and the equipment that's needed, you know if you're going to have a sifter or a sieve, then the point of the sieve is to separate unwanted materials from the wanted elements. Typically people are using flour. And you take the flour and you put it in there and and you're doing it just like this. You got to shake it because it it takes a vigorous process in order to separate the materials that that's not wanted and unusable from the material that you're going to use to make your cake or whatever it is you're going to use. The point of the 
illustration is very simple. None of this takes place in stillness. If you just pour it on the sifter and just leave it there, nothing's going to happen. There's got to be some movement. And God knows that when it comes to our, our Christian lives, if there's something in you or something in me that God wants us to recognize, wants us to have separated from our Christian life, if there's an attitude that has to be dealt with, that needs to be some kind of a process that's going to bring about the separation, because sometimes when he tells us what he wants us to do and how he wants us to change, we refuse to change, we stand still. We act like, I'm just, just the way I am. So then here comes the sifter. Here comes the devil. And he comes after you. Now there are several things about this that are important. Number one, sifting requires vigorous motion, as I said. That means the adversary will work to create circumstances in your life that will bring about discomfort, dis-ease. I'm not talking about it. Just sickness. I'm talking about dis-ease. Takes away your comfort and your peace so that in your life you're unsettled about these things that are taking place. Secondly, he will also, you also you need to know that the sifted material has no control over the process of sifting. Somebody takes the flour, puts it in the sieve, and then starts shaking it, but the flour doesn't have any power to rebuke the one holding it. There's very little you can do when that sifting process starts, because once it starts, it's starting usually because there's something in you that has to come out. You don't believe me? Read the story of the children of Israel. Forty years in the wilderness. Forty. Four decades. They had no idea when they stepped out of Egypt, heading towards that the, the land of deliverance, the land of the free. They had no idea what was inside of them until they hit that wilderness and became hungry. It's the trials and circumstances that reveal to you who you are and what actually is inside of you. But once they became hungry, they were ready to slay the pastor Moses and they were ready to go back to Egypt and said life was better back there. They would have never known that they would have wanted to go back had they not been hungry and thirsty. David never knew he was an adulterer until he saw Bathsheba. So we have a tendency to think of ourselves in such a way that We're a little bit, how does Paul say? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Even the strongest people have struggles, as we'll see. The third thing is, the process will last as long as is necessary. However many cakes you're going to make, that's how much sifting is going to take place. Whatever it is that God's after in your life and in mine. The sifting has to take place. I've told people before that coming to Nebraska and and pastoring and ministering out here, it may not be about you folks at all. This thing may be totally all about me, what he's trying to work out in me. See, what he's trying to do in me. The whole point may be, be to see whether or not he will be faithful with what I've told him to do. And that's exactly how it might be in your life also. Yeah, it's not about you. It's about a kingdom, it's about a God, it's about his word, it's about obedience. And then the fourth thing that's important is that the end product is going to bless many other people. Think of how much work has gone into one loaf of bread and how many folks have been blessed. And look at how many lives in scripture have been sifted and look at how nations have changed. Hebrews 11. You think of what people went through in order to subdue kingdoms. Heal the sick. 
The process of sifting is not always easy. He says here in verse number 32, but I prayed for you. So verse 31 tells us this antagonist, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the seducer, this man who's the destroyer, he's coming after Peter. But verse 32 says, I prayed for you. Now, it's interesting how it goes back and forth between the singular and the plural, because in verse 31, when it says Satan hath desired you, the Lord is looking at Peter. He's talking to Peter. But in the Greek text, the word you is plural. He's telling telling Peter, Satan desires you, but he wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants Thomas. He wants Matthew. But then in verse 32, the Lord speaks in the singular. He says specifically to Peter, I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. That tells you right there, you've got a great intercessor. Yeah. Somebody stands at the right hand of the father. With everything Sister Loretta has passed through, battling cancer, maintaining her testimony, walking with God. You can see here from verse 31, 32, it's not about the devil, it's about Jesus. It's about how strong he is. He says, I prayed for you. In those moments in your life when you thought, how am I ever going to stand? How will I pass through this? I've come to wit's end. There's no way I don't have any other strength in me. There's not an ounce of strength in me left to endure this again. That's when Jesus' words have to come back to you. I prayed for you. I prayed. Jesus said, I prayed for you. That means it's in the past tense. I've already known Satan. I've already known you, Peter, and I've known that Satan is coming after you. But I want you to know with the foreknowledge that I've had, I prayed for you in the past. So that your future will be secure. And then he tells him when you converted, you're to strengthen the the brethren. Now. If Jesus is going to pray and we're going to be secure, this is why he tells Peter in verse 32 there, when you're converted, strengthen your brother. Now, he's not saying when you're born again. He's saying when you after you have betrayed me and done something wrong, when you finally get yourself turned around and on the right track again, you strengthen somebody else because just as sure as you were the target of the devil, there's somebody else coming down the same trail and they also are going to slip and have a problem. And rather than you putting your foot on their neck, you make them stronger. That's what he said. I prayed for you. Now, this this man, uh, Peter, notice the presumption here. Verse 33, Lord, I am ready for prison and death. This is the same man that said to the Lord in another place, though everybody in the discipleship movement forsakes you, I'm the one that's going to be here with you. Presumption. He thought more highly of himself than he ought to. God looked at him and saw something in him that needed to be dealt with. Peter had no idea he was so arrogant. Jesus just told him, Satan's after you. You're going to fail. But when you fall, you're going to get back up again. And when you get yourself all turned around, there's going to be other people for you to make stronger. Jesus just told him that. That's what he said to him. 
And then you can see where the Lord tells him in verse 34, there's a rooster out there that's going to let you know that I'm right. Peter didn't believe it. He knew Jesus was God. He knew Jesus had never apologized. He, he didn't lie. He knows that God doesn't lie. God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. But, but, but who can hear that? Who can believe that? I've got a sword right here on my hip ready to fight, fight anybody that comes against you, Lord. What do you mean when you say I'm going to turn and run away from you and deny you? How can you say that to me? I've been with you since the beginning. I've been with you when they talked about you, when they slandered you, when they conspired to kill you. And as close as we are, you say that to me. That's exactly, exactly what, what he said. So Peter's presumption when he said, I'm ready, is something that wasn't quite, quite true. There was something he had to pass through to learn this. Now, here's the story of what happened. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with Peter, James, and John. Well, he went with all the disciples, but he took Peter, James, and John, went a little further. He began to pray, and as he was praying, the disciples fell asleep. By the time they woke up, there's a crowd there. The crowd is a, is a mob being led by Judas, who was one of the disciples, apostles, had power to heal the sick, cast out devil, formerly preached throughout the land of Israel, and he walks up to Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. And he says, okay, apprehend him. And so the people are ready to fight. Peter pulls his sword out and Peter swings and he's going for that man's head. That man more than likely tried to duck and Peter just barely got his ear. Took it off, though. Jesus reached up there, touched the man's ear and healed him. But when they started, started going after Jesus, you know what all the disciples did? Mark says every single one of them fled. Not just one. All of them. Left alone, Jesus was taken to the Jewish leaders. After the Jewish leaders accused him, they took him to Annas, the father of the high priest Caiaphas. From Annas, they took him to Caiaphas. The Jewish people wanted a death penalty. They said, this man says he's the son of God. He says he's going to re He's going to tear the temple down and rebuild it. We can't give him the death penalty. We need a Roman procurator, a governor to issue the death penalty. Take him to Pilate. They woke Pilate up in the middle of the night, said, look, this man, we want him dead and we want him dead now. And Pilate knew they were after him because of envy. Wow. There's a wife that told somebody, you ought to leave this man alone. I had some dreadful dreams about him. Pilate said, where is Jesus from? They said, Nazareth area, up there by Canaan, places like that. Pilate said, I found, I found a way out. We don't have to deal with this at all. Send him to Herod. That's his jurisdiction. They shipped him off to Herod. Herod went right up there and, and listened to Jesus, and they brought him in. And he said, oh, I want you to do a miracle. I've been wanting to see some magician work for a little while. And the Lord didn't even respond to him, never uttered a word. Oh, since you don't want to play by the rules, we'll play by mine. He said, soldiers, I want you to strip that coat off of him. Take a crown of thorns, press it down upon his brow. Then I want you to begin to smack him on either side of the face. And once you're done with that, one by one, I want each of you soldiers to walk by Jesus. And I want you to spit on him. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, afterwards, they sent him back to Pilate. 
But somewhere in all of this transference from one judgment to the other, Peter is over here at a, at a bonfire with a bunch of other people. And his accent from Galilee is a lot different than those in Jerusalem. And so they're saying, well, di- didn't we see you with that man, Jesus, that they apprehended? Oh, no, no, no. I'm just I'm down here at the sale barn. You know, we, we're buying cattle and selling sheep. No, no, nobody saw me. Somebody else came along and said, wait a minute, hold on. Didn't I see you with that man, Jesus, they had here not too long ago? No, not me. No. no. Somebody else a little bit, a little bit later said, hold on now, Peter, you, you are one of them. You don't even talk like people around here. You sound just like all of them folks from where Jesus came from. Peter got so mad, he started swearing. He said, no, I'm not a part of this. And then he turned and he looked and somehow the way they had Jesus positioned, his eyes met Jesus' eyes, and Jesus looked at him, and suddenly Peter realized he'd denied the Lord, and he began to weep bitterly, and that cock started crowing. Oh, my. Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. How are you ready to die for me? How are you ready to be incarcerated? You're not even ready to acknowledge who I am at a bonfire. But Peter didn't know that when Jesus was talking to him. He didn't learn it until everything fell apart. Folks, I really would like to believe that if they passed laws in this state that said that Christians can no longer hold Bibles in their homes and preachers can't preach the truth in the churches and we're going to close down certain churches that don't toe the line and preach what we want, I'd like to believe every single one of us would stand. That God would give his, give his grace to us to be strong enough to fight against it. But I know from my studies of the early church, there were a whole lot of people when they were to- told to burn incense to Caesar, they buckled. They buckled. When they looked at those kids that were torn apart by wild animals, the thought of having to go into a, a, an amphitheater and fight wild animals to the death, Knees begin to buckle like somebody way up high and looking down and getting nervous. Just body feels like it's turning to water. But I want to believe that every single one of us will be strong in our faith. Yeah, that's what I want to believe. I want all of us to be able to say, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both into prison and to death. And not only say it, but mean it and have it strong enough inside of us to do it. That's why he said to Peter... I have prayed for you that your faith fails not. And according to church tradition, if there's any truth in it, Peter died because of his faith. He was crucified upside down. He said, don't crucify me right side up. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner that Jesus was crucified. There did come a point in his life when he was ready. See, sometimes God takes us through a process of sifting or permits us to enter into a process of sifting. But don't you ever forget that Christ says, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. His sustaining hand is what upholds us in the difficult times of life. Oh, my. Folks, it's hard without God. I'm telling you, I don't know how people do it. I know there are a lot of people do it every day or think they're doing it, but to do this life without God cannot be easy at all. Cannot be easy. Let's stand. What a mighty God we serve.
Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adores him. What a mighty God. There's a lot we can learn from Peter. We can learn about our intercessor. We got God on our side. A king that loves us and cares for us. And that's a wonderful thing. When we pass through those periods where God's working on our character, no sense in fighting God. Just simply say, Lord, I worship you. I thank you. I glorify you. Rebuke the devil. Bring the blood to bear against the devil. Use the name of Jesus against the devil. Fight him with everything you got. Whip out all your shields of faith. And I mean, go to war against him. But don't just lay there passively and let him just do whatever he wants to do. But God, help us to learn the lessons so that we won't have to go through the sifting process. But then God, help us that if by chance we end up in the process to learn it as quick as possible. Folks, I don't want to spend four decades in the wilderness trying to figure out what it is God's trying to say to me. I want to hear what he's saying. Let's pray. Father, again, it's a blessing to look into your word and to know it's truth. And to know that you don't lie. That these characters are illustrations of your ability. Father, each of us in here, we are trophies of your grace. And we thank you for how you've delivered us and rescued us from situations in our past. Other people may not understand where we've come from, but yet, Lord, you even know where we're going. And we thank you that you understand where we are right now. So, By your precious blood, cleanse us of all iniquity. Help us to be humble in our walk with you and to walk with you courageously, knowing you are great and mighty God. This we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.